Welcome to Navigating the Next Normal. I'm Mike Gordon, the CEO of Altus Group. I hope that you and your family are doing well and perhaps even finding a way to prosper in these challenging times. A crisis typically speeds up what was going to happen anyway. After the longest CRE expansion anyone can remember, the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed forward multiple disruptions to business as usual that have been coming for years. The crisis is exposing who was ready for change and who wasn't, especially when it comes to leveraging technology strategically. The winners and losers of the next cycle are being determined by how well companies are positioned to adapt today. Today's guest is Michael Levy, CEO of Crow Holdings. Six months into the pandemic, Scott and Michael discuss the state of the different asset classes now and dissect the acceleration of existing trends. Michael provides a perspective not only around the factors that help shape these trends, but their evolution and impact alongside COVID-19. Have the trends we've all seen been accounted for, or are brand new ones forming, ones we've overlooked? Michael's outlook on the future is worth taking seriously. This is a great discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. This is Scott Morey, and I feel very fortunate today to have Michael Levy, who is CEO of Crow Holdings. We're going to talk about a little bit here, Michael, your background, and I want to go into today, but I very much want to look forward to the future. But but thank you for joining me today. Scott, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. It was a, is a pleasure. I know you're getting a lot of requests for these too, so I, I appreciate you joining me. Sometimes I go back pretty far back in people's history, but I think in your case, I really want to go to 2016 after right, an 18-year career, which I think from all indications was an amazing career right? that you're having at Morgan Stanley. You made a decision to join Crow. And I just love to understand sort of that decision point and what led you there from your, your career and you know, what, what made you uh, decide to, to leave Morgan Stanley. Sure. As you said, I spent 18 years and I had a terrific, uh, everybody has their story and everybody has their career. I had mine, but I, uh, I got lucky enough to uh, get a job out of law school in investment banking. And uh, I spent the first half of my career in investment banking. I happened to fall into real estate and I learned a lot. And uh, midway through my career, facts changed and I had an opportunity to move into real estate investing. And, and then further along, I had a chance to work broadly across investment management at uh, Morgan Stanley. So I had a broad range of experiences. And when you're particularly in a client side investment banking, pretty much every year, somebody's knocking on your door with respect to an opportunity. And you think about your life and what you're doing. And that had gone on for 18 years of my career. And then in, in uh, a little before 2016, I was asked to uh, meet with Harlan Crow. And uh, I had never met with Harlan before. And I spent a little bit of time with them and I was just so highly surprised. I, I really hadn't met an individual like him. And I thought he was an incredibly gracious, considerate uh, human being. And it was very interested in me as a person. And it was uh, refreshing. And as I got to know Harlan, I got to know some people in the organization. I found it was a place of incredibly talented, but good, honorable, capable people who worked by shaking your hand and you have an arrangement and the relationship matters over decades. And I found that incredibly compelling. And so for the first time in my life, as I considered opportunities for my career, it grabbed my heart. It didn't grab my head, it grabbed my heart. And 
my heart said to me and my wife said to me, you know, you need to go do this. And uh, it was a terrific decision and I've never looked back and I've had a smile on my face pretty much every single day. What is interesting to me too, because you're right, you go back, you were briefly at Prudential, you then were at Solomon Brothers, whose reputation in some ways you could argue preceded itself, good and bad, right? But probably more good than bad, but it turned. Travelers slash city, I think, took them out right about when you left or before you left, right? And then you ended up at Morgan. So I have the same sort of, I've not been fortunate enough to meet Harlan or Trammell before I sort of take the same tier like that with Gerald Hines once I got maybe, gosh, I don't know how many years ago it was, he came down to Nigeria of all places, which is a whole other story. And it was an amazing experience, but and the same kind of thing, right? It's a different way of doing business that I think pro is kind of maintained to this day. But talk about that culture, because even in the interviews you've done before in writing and, and other stuff I read, you talk about the discussion being very much around the culture and them understanding you and the values and I'd love, and, and to me, in a way, Crow Today is built on that value and culture kind of structure. Can you expand more kind of both when you joined in 2016, but, you know, so how do you view that today and the importance of it? I guess as simple as I can, and I, I, this isn't a criticism of my I mean. I think I grew up in New York. I spent my whole life there. And I would argue it's a very transactional marketplace. Incredibly bright people, talented, ethical, good, honest people but a very transactional environment. Here uh, at our organization, it's a relationship-based environment. And of course, there's a transaction that culminates over time, but those are different cultures. And some of the relationships we have here are 40, 50, 60 years old, and they span individuals, and it's different. Of course, ultimately, there's a transaction, and ultimately, there are documents, and but it's a different environment, even though largely we're in very similar businesses. And, you know, I was in the real estate private equity business at Morgan Stanley. I'm in the real estate private equity business at Crow. The other thing I'd say is very personal is Crow is a real estate firm. We have a terrific and large real estate development business. The people here have built buildings and leased buildings and managed buildings, as well as grown up in finance. And it's a broader range of uh, capabilities. And that affects culture as well as opposed to pure finance people who happen to be in the real estate sector as an area of finance. And those are two big differences in, uh, in the organizations and the nature of what, uh, what we do. We'll turn a corner now. Let's just talk about, not necessarily today, but just trends in general. And I have a belief, and I, I think you do too, and you said something, my research that was pretty similar, that in cycles like this, you really don't see new trends. You see kind of the acceleration, in some cases, of existing trends. and you know, I go back in time and in 2018, you were talking about small retail. Of course, retail is going to lead us to what you're doing on the industrial side. And you talked about um, some internet resistant, I'm not using the right word, sorry, but sort of resilience, probably the better word, retail. You go back to 2018 and, and today and looking forward, what is your view on retail? I don't think my view has, has changed, and we'll, we'll, we'll spend a couple minutes on this. Most retail, not all retail, has a significant component, if not an entire component, of selling goods, of selling products, uh, of selling things. And if you're selling goods or products or things, they can be sold online. Retail that has restaurants or services or getting your hair cut or the dry cleaners, these are not things that can be replaced online. And it just seemed to us years ago, and it still seems today, that those 
places where you're getting services provided to you and experience the word that is the common word today is experiences, but I'd say services, those retail properties should continue to all things being equal, do well, so long as they're well-located and people decide to live into those areas. And so our thesis was, we want to invest in retail, uh, that the tenancy is uh, selling services. And so we decided years ago that we would focus on, uh, I think the word we used at the time was small retail. These are small centers. Uh, on one end, they have a drive through Starbucks. On another end, they have a Jersey Mike's. And in between, they have a cupcake store, a hairdresser, and a and other service tenants with very little goods being sold. And um, that thesis into COVID was doing great. And the internet uh, and online commerce was not disrupting. In fact, when you buy your food online from Uber Eats, where do you think they get the, uh, the food from? These, these small centers with the, uh, the small restaurants. Along comes COVID. And uh, across America, uh, all of retail is asked to effectively close and lock down. And at the heart, in March and April, you looked at even our centers, and you had something in the neighborhood of 20% of the stores were fully open and 40% were partially open and 40% were closed. We'll roll the clock forward to today and we'll see where all this lands. But we are, our rent collection is over 75% today. The vast majority of stores are open. We have over 1,500 different tenants and only a handful of them are no longer with us. And so I think within this category of retail, our thesis remains accurate relative to retail centers that have goods-oriented tenants. And I simply think that trend is simply accelerated. E-commerce has exploded. We went into this COVID-induced uh, period at roughly 14% of goods were sold online. I don't know where we'll land in a year or two from now, but it won't be 16%. And uh, that trend is accelerated and you see it. You know, you're watching it every day as the goods-oriented retail properties are really um, having a very, very difficult time. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think I was, I was catching up with Tom McGee at ICSC and the original stat in 2019, I think is they thought 12.4% of uh, sales would be online as a percentage of, and it, clearly that number's off the charts and we won't see it stabilized probably for years is kind of my own you know, opinion. But you know, the other thing that's sort of in there that people lose the fact is what percent of those online sales are what we would call traditional retailers, right? on bricks and mortar and that mix. And then I'm sure you saw today, I think it was today or yesterday, uh, I was up early today, the numbers from Target, <laughs> unbelievable, right? And you looked at the online, and there's no surprise at all, but I mean, you know, they're calling themselves a unicorn and because the numbers are just, you know, un unbelievable. So, you know, if you go kind of a little bit deeper than that, and, you, you know, you look at the malls and what, there's 1,100 malls in the U.S. At one point, I think there were roughly 300 that were classified as A's. Everyone thought they were safe. And my impression is that number is much, much smaller. Maybe there's 50 that are safe, that it's a market level fight, right? About who's got their tenants and the right mix. That's sort of service-based, but, you know, sort of frequency of visit, proximity matters more than ever. You know, you've talked about mixed use and the value that you value, and I do too, about having stuff close in this sort of live, work, play kind of environment. But that trend's clearly seems like it's going to continue. If you go down that thought, though, and, and I, I don't know if I don't know, I'm going to ask you to guess, I mean, there's always a thought that we were over retailed at 24 per square feet per capita. We've all seen the numbers, right? But our economy is not the same as everyone else's. I mean, is there any belief or do you have any thoughts around where that ends up or is it just a guess? Yeah, I don't. 
I don't want to speculate on percentages. You can see the trends. It's self-evident. We, we know the direction, the pace and the velocity of the direction, where it stabilizes. We can, you know, it's a little bit pure speculation. So I think if you follow these secular trends, what informs me is the secular trends. It doesn't matter exactly where it lands. Yeah, I think that, I think you're, I think it's a fair comment. So let's shift to industrial. Take pack and shipping online orders versus just moving to stores. They say it increases the demand of inventory space three or four fold, right? On a square footage basis. And then I saw, I think JLL came out and said they think there's another billion square feet that we need out there. And Prologis said demand today globally was up sort of five to 10%. But can you kind of share your opinions on that? class and there's flavors of industrial too, right? Which I think people kind of miss or don't understand, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. You know, just uh, just a side note, we uh, we still own Trammell's first industrial building that he built in 1948. So it's it's down the street here. It's terrific. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and it actually is on a street called Cole Street. And my youngest son's called, uh, name is Cole. So hmm. um, I just think that's terrific. Uh Look, there are three forces at work today with respect to the demand. I'm going to use the word industrial. Some people would use the word logistics. Mm-hmm. Some people use the word warehouses. Uh, so what we're not talking about is manufacturing plants. Uh, there are three forces at work. And we've been talking a little bit about the e-commerce force. And there are lots of studies out there for each 1% of online sales drives so much square footage. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about it. Those numbers are huge. There's another force at work that materially accelerated. And perhaps this is a this is a dynamic that changed in COVID, which is we were in a world of just-in-time inventory. That is something for my professional career that companies have been seeking. I think uh, this COVID-induced world, certainly in the United States, has moved us to resilient inventory. Uh, when you look at things like pharmaceuticals, oh my goodness, uh, they're not here. Uh, when you look at supply chains and the ability to get parts and equipment for your businesses, and very, very small changes in the percentage of inventories that companies across America need to hold has a profound impact on the amount of industrial square footage uh, required. The third trend that is taking place and, and was taking place prior to 2020 was a shift in the global manufacturing base and particularly uh, trade tariffs and taxation moving manufacturing from places like China to other countries, uh, including the United States. And those three forces are at work today. There are many folks better equipped than me, as you mentioned, JLL or C.B. Richard Ellis, to run analytical studies and forecasting, you know, the amount of square footage that will be needed to meet this incremental demand. But this is not tens of millions of square feet. This is not even hundreds of millions of square feet. Ultimately, the totality of this demand is in the billions of square feet over time. Many users of that space will require more modern facilities. Today, you're looking at a a, uh, probably state-of-the-art clear height of 40 feet. Uh, roll the clock back 20 years ago, that was a much lower clear height. Uh, electronics and robotics allow you to use the uh, cubic footage in ways that you couldn't years ago. Uh, the robotics that are going into some of these facilities that has changed the layouts of these properties. One of the biggest changes has been the amount of uh, parking for the employees. When the old days, you might have a building with the need for 30 employees in the warehouse. And today, in the fulfillment areas, you might have a need for 500 employees in your warehouse. And so you have a need not only for parking, but for amenities for these people that work there every day. And some of those amenities can be walking areas and quality of life issues for the people that work there. And so all space isn't equal. Space needs to be uh, configured for the needs of the modern user. 
And so that's changing. And so newly developed space meets those changing needs. And then the last point is uh, the industrial logistics business is highly concentrated in about eight markets across the United States. And while this trend is taking place everywhere, whether it's Southern California due to the ports or Chicago due to the trains or Atlanta due to its uh, highway infrastructure, there's eight or nine markets or seven or eight markets in the U.S. that are about 50% of the net absorption. And so from our perspective as a developer and as an investor, we're highly concentrated in those markets, which are benefiting from all these trends. Are you as a developer being asked to, to build more out of those properties? You know, historically, it was like you threw up the walls and people would call it like a vanilla box and the uh, tenant effectively would do all the build out work. And, and are you being asked to do more today than 10 years ago? In general, we're still providing the framework and the shell and, and uh, you know, tenant specialized needs with respect to racking and robotics is, mm-hmm. is an area that um, they're focused on for their specialized needs as opposed to us as the uh, real estate developer. And so it's not an area that is increasing materially. I'll go back to, but we are being asked to consider different layouts and configurations, particularly to accommodate uh, the number of employees in the property. But that doesn't mean that we're building out the robotics and the racking systems for the specific tenants' needs. And then what about you're seeing, we've seen in other sectors on trying to maximize vacant space, right, in some ways. And so I know Prolog just put money in Flex. There's startups like called Darkstore and others that are trying to find either last mile, but in some cases not last mile, kind of more mainstream excess available inventory space to optimize that in some fashion. Like, what's your beliefs on that? I don't know if I'm answering your question entirely, but let me at least try. There's no doubt one of the other trends is consumers, you and me, expect and demand things faster, 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 mm-hmm. faster. That is a trend that has, for my entire life, taken place, and I don't see it reversing. So if you're going to get faster, 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 you need to be closer, closer, closer. <laughs> and as you get closer to the consumer, these info locations, it's both harder to find the space. You know, you have to find space that allow trucks to come to them, vans to come to them, space gets more expensive. And so trying to get as creative as you can for this word that I think the marketplace relies on, which is last mile. And I think there's creativity in last mile. Now, last mile can be a retail shopping center where you have some Amazon lockers. I would argue that that is a component of last mile. In Dallas, there was a Infill location where we built a 60,000 foot industrial facility with a unique layout right in the heart of town. We had to be very creative with design and engineering on that. And so I think you do have to have more creativity the closer in. Uh, we had spent a lot of time in the New York metro area on some multi use properties right on the water in Brooklyn recently. That was something that I don't think 10 years ago anybody would have looked at. But the decreased time of getting to the consumer, very important. But you need to be very creative to develop this space. It was a highly complicated engineering project, very uh, significant environmental concerns. And so there's a higher degree of creativity on the last mile. But I I don't think anybody should underestimate the need for space at the ports, at the intermodal locations, still 10 miles outside of your main urban environment, the 200,000 to 400,000 foot greenfield development more is taking place there than in the last mile. Yeah, makes it makes sense. Let me let me shift gears and go to apartments, which is another important asset class to you. And my impression is that market's been 
pretty strong in the scheme of things. I'd read statistics. I think it goes back to the fourth quarter of last year. They were projecting 280,000 units coming online right this year, which I think was double or more than double than the volume in 2014. So clearly there's a lot of development going in that category, but the demand has been there. And of course, you've got this ebb and flow between home ownership, current market dynamics, and sort of that space. But can you kind of expand on your views and, and how Crow looks at that? Look, at it, it, there's a number of forces at work in, in this discussion. The most important thing that we've been looking at and paying attention to is demographics, age, Gen Z, millennials, much more likely to rent. And that has been a great trend that has supported multifamily. And, and things shifted materially out of the global financial crisis, as everybody knows. A tremendous amount of single-family homes were being built. We went into a terrible crisis. And the multifamily environment uh, just took off uh, coming out of that. And that's a really important factor. And those age cohorts continue. The Gen Z age cohort is a very powerful and large group for continued and sustained demand in multifamily. You had other dynamics where Americans, all things been equal, have been seeking more experiences and less things. You've watched older people, empty nesters say, hey, I don't need such a big house. This apartment living allows me to have time to do the things that I want to do in life. Look at the product that's been built. You know, the type of apartments, the amenities that are available today relative to when I was a young man, I can't even compare the properties today and the, the pools and the the common areas and the co-working environments, these are elements of the experience that have changed dramatically. And so the product has changed with the consumer in very positive ways. And these are all positive forces for sustained demand in the multifamily sector. And then we hit COVID. And as an industry, we sat there in March saying, oh my goodness, uh, what's going to happen to April rent? And uh, we sat around and said, my goodness, a third of people aren't going to be able to or willing to pay rent. And and lo and behold, come April, people are paying rent in May, and June, and July, and August. So now the discussion is, well, at the end of the stimulus, it's people aren't going to pay rent. Look, we'll see what September brings, but I'll make the following argument. We are all nesting in our homes today, all of us. People are working from home a lot more. Our homes have become important. Look at Lowe's and Home Depot and the investments people are making in the homes. They're nesting in a way that they heretofore weren't. Um, we'll see what happens, but I, I think the apartment sector is, is going to continue to do well. I know people are economically challenged and there's tremendous high levels of unemployment. And these are all challenging issues for a society. But to your point, there's no doubt that apartment supply will be diminished relative to those expectations six months ago. It will not collapse. There are still investors there focused on the development of newly built apartments, particularly in the high growth Southeast, Southwest markets where people are moving to, uh, perhaps at an accelerating pace, and they're going to need a place to live. So I still feel good about the apartment business. And as you know, there's this area that now has become a, a very uh, talked about area, single family rental, programmatic communities developed around horizontal apartments, for lack of a better word. And that's attracted a lot of attention as people move to these Southeast, Southwest markets for a degree of privacy and convenience. And it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, but there's, there's been a trend for a while globally on people navigating the core urban areas. It was something like 54%, something over 50% of the world's population is there. That trend pre-COVID was predicted to be, you know, at 70 some percent by 2025 or 2030, I can't remember it. But what's your belief on that? Because a lot of noise around are people moving out of core urban. I'm in Chicago, which has had a lot of challenges like other cities. And 
you know, you hear our people moving out to the suburbs, they go into these smaller towns. Like, what's your, your belief on that thought? Well, look, I think, you know, there's long term, there's short term, there's medium term. I'll go back to something you said earlier. I do believe this live, work, play is important. I think ultimately we have to transcend looking beyond the current COVID environment. We have to think out three, four, five years about what will human beings want. And I think human beings do want those elements of their lives. We do want to engage with one another. And I think it is urban environments that create that opportunity to engage at that level. But at the same time, take my hometown of New York City. People can talk about San Francisco. You know, these, these cities became very difficult to get around in, very difficult traffic, very expensive to live in, grittier, as we see right now, crime is increasing, COVID doesn't allow people to go into their offices and ride elevators. There's a lot of forces at work that have taken a little bit of bloom off the rose for the time being. And yes, you see the data. People are, in fact, temporarily and at least permanently moving out to the suburbs or at the margin making that decision you know, I'll go back to my hometown. Uh, this has been too tough. This is too difficult. I'm a young family. This is hard. And I think in the near term, I don't know what that means, but certainly the next couple few years, you're seeing right now a drop in demand. And uh, I don't think it's positive for these big, large uh, urban environments. Now, roll the clock forward five years and 10 years as we adjust. But remember, these cities have had huge growth in in the past decade you know mm-hmm. nothing trees do not grow to the sky and so they'll adjust and they'll evolve but to, to make that this is the end of big urban cities I, I will juxtapose two markets that that's been interesting for me new york one big dense urban market that everyone has to come into that makes it very expensive and makes the quality of life difficult of getting around versus a market like dallas which is a city, uh, you know, a city of effectively six urban nodes, all linked, all close, but no one place has more than a couple million people. And so the quality of life and the ability to get around and the cost of living is materially improved, while at the same time, you have the live, work, play dynamics in these different urban nodes. That's made possible because of topography here. There are some places like New York where that's not possible, but it's, uh, it's compelling living in it it's a compelling environment yeah i think you're i think you're right so we've gone we're clicking through all the asset classes here so let's talk about office and in january you had made an announcement about pro holdings office and i haven't heard a lot about it not that that's a new asset class for pro because you guys have done some amazing properties in dallas and in, in other cities but i want to talk about kind of what you're doing there but also around briefly mentioned this but i think about retail and you go back 20 years, no one really had any specialty income revenue. And now it's substantive. It's not huge, but it's substantive. And then you had temporary tenants. Now you've got pop-ups, which to me is a more glamorous, shorter-term version of a temporary tenant, right? And then you take multifamily, where I'm seeing before a property would be designated for all conventional housing or student housing, and people by unit now are spending that optimized revenue, right? Whatever it may be. And we're talking about industrial briefly, and we talk about flex and this other stuff. But Office is an interesting one because the trend pre-COVID was, you look at what's going on with WeWork, they weren't the only format, they struck a nerve. So I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of what Pro's doing on this category, but also what your view is of, you know, companies like WeWork and other competing formats and where that fits in. There's a lot packed in what you just said, so I'll perhaps pick off a couple of elements of it. Maybe I'll talk about our ideas around Crowley's office, and then we'll talk a little bit about 
co-working as, as a topic. As you said, we have not been in the office development business for you know the better part of the past 20 years. And uh, we've watched the sector evolve. Perhaps in hindsight, that was a good decision for the most part. But it's clear to us, and this has been clear for years, that uh, companies and office workers want something different than they wanted 20 years ago. They want more open space. They want collaborative areas. The physical design, the amenities has changed. And the tenancy is changing. So much more tech, right? So much more creative office space. I think that's the right word. That really isn't going to be replicated in, in some of the older buildings in downtown areas. And we just saw an opportunity in the markets we're most familiar with, the Southeast and the Southwest, where the reality is that people are moving to, right? And so we have been here for, for a long time. We're seeing the population and the companies move to these markets and they need space. They need newly built, newly designed, creative space. And the reality is if you can provide the space they're looking for, they are willing to pay a premium for that. The differentiation of pricing for older space that doesn't meet their needs and newer space that meets their needs is very profound. And so we thought that we would tap into that and begin to develop office uh, for that creative use. You know, it doesn't mean it's a tech company, but I think many companies are looking for that creative space. And given that it is our, our headquarters, we would do that in Dallas. And so we, within our development company, which, you know, for your listeners, is a, is a, a large apartment development company, an industrial development company, under that umbrella, uh, we started Pro Holdings Office, and we brought on board a terrific guy who's families from Dallas to get started. And this was January. And in February, COVID happened. So we are watching now. And what's been interesting is I think your listeners would have said in January, this trend towards density is unstoppable, right? Less square footage per employee. Well, I think we're watching right now. Will that trend continue? What will people's sensibilities be? What will the hangover from COVID be in terms of the way space needs to be designed, the way it needs to be laid out? And I think over the course of 2020, we're going to listen and learn and participate and design and develop consistent with some of those changing trends. So that might be something out of COVID that actually has changed as opposed to accelerated uh, as a result of this change. And look, we will build a building, we'll build another building, we'll build another building. And over a period of years, uh, we'll build out a, uh, an office development business that's, uh, that's scaled and that will take time for us. And we're in no rush we're excited about it. Um, look, WeWork did a terrific job of, of at least providing a product to the customer. The customer said, I want that. Now, as you know, co-working has been around a long time. This yes. is not a new idea. <laughs> no. um, <laughs> I was at Equity Office in 2004 and they were rolling out in their own format. And uh, yes, you're correct. We've rebranded something. We've rebranded. And look, you've got to give them credit. From the customer's perspective, they offered a product that was differentiated, even though it was on an old theme and they executed in a way. I'm not making a comment on values or investing, mm -hmm. or I'm just saying that the product to the customer and the customer reacted. Now, whether or not that was a good business model in the aggregate, I think the issue with co-working is, you know, in the old days, you'd execute a long-term lease and you'd have a bondable income stream against uh, the CapEx that you need to spend to create the space for people. You know, the moment you move to a non-bondable lease and a monthly arrangement, you better make sure that the capex that you spend is ubiquitous for any tenant that may need, uh, as well as the durability of that income stream has changed. So 
given that the durability of the income stream has changed, as is shown through COVID. Should it trade at the same multiple? You know, is it increased risk? You know, I'd argue it is increased risk. But do I think that the need for flexibility, do I think that in this Zoom-enabled world uh, that people won't want more flexibility? You know, I'll work from home one day. I'll go in the office four days a week. I think this need for flexible office space, I will tell you in the apartment buildings we're building across the United States, day by day, week by week, step by step, there's some co-working space being built into it. You know, in the big uh, common areas, we're building nooks and crannies and corners for business activities. So I think this trend's been in place for a long time. We worked did a nice job of redefining the minds of the customer. And I don't see this trend changing. Will it be all the buzz and the most important thing? Probably not. All good. I don't disagree. My old boss is the CEO, by the way, of WeWork, Sandy Mithrani, who I work for at UGP. He's, a, he's, a, he's the right guy for that job. So I have faith in him. Um, Cross asset class, there's been a theme. It started with, I mean, multifamily always had it, then retail, and then a lot of focus on the office side on engagement around as an owner and operator, you know, what relationships should I extend directly to the people that are using my space, whether they're shoppers or whether they're residents um, or whether they're employees, right, for some company. There's been a lot of capital spent on that for technology, right? The whole variety of companies, people that are piloting it. I have my own thoughts and it's been a fair amount of this category, but I wanted to get your thoughts on, is that a fad? Is that something that's going to continue? Do you see value there? I got to make sure I understand the question because I'm not entirely sure. So is, yeah. is it as owner of the property, your um, the experience you're trying to provide for those people that are there? Yeah. And is trying that- to communicate them, you know, in some fashion. So if you take malls and some of the open center folks are doing it where they've got an app and they're trying to push out and, and directly engage with the consumer. Residence has always happened, right? Because residents pay online, they request fixes, you notify them about packages. But in the last three years, it's been this focus for offices, really driven by WeWork. That you know, in theory, people thought they had this you know amazing digital platform that was providing services and communicating with those folks that people feel like they need to replicate. I think it goes into the broader category of amenity evolution. And, uh, you know, for all of these, think of the amenities you use to provide at apartments. Think of the amenities you use to provide at retail. Think of the amenities you use to provide at office buildings. And certainly over my life, you know, that has changed and they've increased materially. And, and you as the real estate developer, owner, operator, you know, are providing more and more and more. And I think uh, technology and app-enabled tools that allow you more efficiency in getting responses and getting information. Sure, yes, it's absolutely you know, part of a long-term trend and it, it evolves and it continues and it gets better and more refined. I don't think it's anything new. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think it's just a continuum. And I love the fact that Silicon Valley and other people are investing tremendous amounts of capital in creating all sorts of tools to uh, increase the experience and the efficiency of the underlying real estate, whether all that capital will generate uh, the returns it's seeking, I don't know. But as a uh, market participant in the real estate business, I think it's fabulous because we get to benefit from all of those uh, tools that improve the experience and the efficiency of living in these properties, working in these properties, and and owning and operating these properties. Hello, we're getting, getting near the end. I have a, a couple more questions. So continuing this thought, if you go back 10 years ago when you were at Morgan Stanley to today, 
actually did an interview I saw in 2013, and it was very much around operating the portfolio and managing an oversight. Do you feel with the technology that's in place today compared to 10 years ago that you have that much better visibility and control and data to make decisions? Has the needle really moved or you know, do we still have a long ways to go? I think it's been evolving my whole career. You know, I'll use the word information management. I think that you know, the tools that were available 10 years ago, one, they cost a lot more. The amount of money that we had spent on developing these tools. And today, these tools are just much less expensive. They're more ubiquitous. They're much easier to integrate golden source data. And in a moment's notice, what used to take you a week to get together, you know, sometimes is literally in the database, hit a button, you get the answers to it. And so the information and the analytics coming out at you is happening more rapidly. What you do with that, the idea that that's going to make decisions for you going forward, I don't think that's changed very much, but helping inform you of the information around your portfolios and how they're performing and what insights you glean from that, they're just better. But it's not like they got better last year. You know, They've just improved each and every year and the, the curve's getting better and uh, they're getting easier to work with. And we've made investments and we're partnered with a terrific company called RealPage that's helped us uh, across our portfolio. And in COVID, it's fascinating because when this happened very quickly, my goodness, what's happening? Real time, here's what's happening. 10 years ago, uh, there would have been a lot of anecdotes as to yep. what's happening. True. So I'm going to shift gears more personal note, but given I, you're from New York, are you a Knicks fan on basketball? Or I asked that because I, I know you met Magic Johnson and I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm a huge Lakers fan and I would kill to meet Magic Johnson. So where are your loyalties on basketball? Well, you know, as a, as a kid, my dad moved us out to Long Island. And so uh, the portfolio sports teams would have been the Nets, yeah. the Jets, the Mets, and the Islanders. Um, <laughs> and I guess if I grew up in New York City, it would have been the Knicks and the Rangers and the Giants. So uh, I did grow up as a big Knicks fan. Uh, and I guess for the past 20 years, that's probably been a, a good decision. But my youngest child just has loved basketball. And, uh, you know, it was a treat for him to meet the Lakers. And it's been a, a, a lot of fun. Yeah. And a real estate guy in his own right, right? There's some, yeah. there's some good stories there. He's done some great work. Magic's an unbelievable force of nature. He is so gracious. He's such a thoughtful human being. He does so many good things for the community. He's a righteous man. It was a privilege to get to meet him. Well, thank you for the time. I could say the same things about you, by the way. And I know you donate your time a lot of places and both to your alumni, but also to the broader community. So thank you for that. Thank you for today. I hope our past cross again. I, I really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Scott. I love talking about the, uh, the industry and the business. And uh, thank you for giving me your time today. 